0: PFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Harold Meyerson will talk about the Minneapolis verdicts in the murder of George Floyd and about the systemic changes we need in policing. And today, Thursday, is Earth Day. Harold has some good news from an unexpected corner, the Mine Workers Union. And Mark Hertzgard will talk about the way millions of people in the streets have made governments take action to address the climate emergency. But first, the George Floyd verdicts in Minneapolis on Tuesday. For that, we turn to Jody Armour. He's the Roy Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. He's been all over the media talking about Black Lives Matter and those verdicts. And he's got a new book out on race, language, unequal justice, and the law. It's called N-Word Theory. Jody Armour, welcome back. Good to be back with you, John. Well, we're speaking on Tuesday afternoon after the jury's verdicts in the trial of Minneapolis Police Officer Derek Chauvin, charged with the murder of George Floyd. And we heard three words, guilty, guilty, guilty. Then we saw a police officer put in handcuffs in the courtroom and taken off to jail for murdering a black man. I think that may be a first in American history. What did you think?
1: Our collective sense of relief. I think there was a collective sigh as if we had avoided a calamity. And the fact that we all, many of us, had that sense. I talked to many of my friends who's talked about how nervous they were all morning since the uh, closing arguments? Think about what it says, John, for us to be that anxious and nervous about the outcome of this case when we were looking at nine minutes and 29 seconds of an egregious video that was such an open and shut in so many ways. It was open and shut in the way that the Rodney King video was when we first saw it. But then we saw when the Simi Valley jury looked at that Rodney King video in 92, they acquitted those officers for what seemed like egregiously outrageous conduct. So we worried that the same thing might happen here. We remember that, you know, um, Walter Scott was shot six times in the back as he was running away from an officer. And we saw that on video and we saw a jury deadlock despite that video. So there was a lot of anxiety about whether that could happen again here. And just the fact that we feel so relieved is an indictment itself of a system that we would be that worried about with respect to evidence this strong. Um, It tells us that sometimes Black America has been gaslighted by the rest of America. They were gaslighted by the Simi Valley jury in the first Rodney King verdict. They were gaslighted constantly about whether what we see with our own eyes is really racism. And so this is one time that Black America's sense of reality and that jury's sense of reality lined up and also our sense of
0: justice. And let's look at what else it took to get us to this verdict. Millions of people took to the streets last summer demanding justice for George Floyd for weeks in every city and town, every state in the country. And before that, we had years of organizing by Black Lives Matter, showing how to do it even when the going was tough. It took a lot of work unprecedented in American history, the biggest demonstrations in American history, the most sustained, the most diverse, the most geographically distributed, took all that to get us to today.
1: Yes, we have to remember that after this initial homicide, there wasn't going to be any action taken against Derek Chauvin from all appearances. It took people going to the streets. It took urban unrest. It took the it took what people wanted to call rioting, if you will, in order to get um, the officials in Minnesota to even indict Derek Chauvin in the first place. So when I see people like the attorney general of Minnesota now standing out there with the prosecutors and all of them, you know, kind of uh, doing a victory lap you know, as if their exertions are what got us here. No, the exertions that got us here were the people in the street who put their necks on the line, their liberty on the line, and often suffer traumatic injury as a result. And they made it so that um, Keith Ellison and the attorney generals and the prosecutors had a case that should have been a slam dunk, John. Okay, if we're setting the bar this low that we're going to feel triumphant and celebrate, you know, a conviction when the evidence is nine minutes and 29 seconds of a video that shocks the conscience, then that's a very low bar.
0: And let's also honor Darnella Fraser, the 17 year old black girl who kept that video running on her cell phone on May 25th. Must have been a horrible experience for her. her te- and her testimony in the trial was so eloquent. It's not just the technology. It's the person who was there, who was willing, who was able to do it at undoubtedly a great personal cost to herself.
1: Great personal cost, John. And you as a journalist know that actually a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement has been driven by street-level journalism, Right by people bringing information to all of us in this form, often at great personal sacrifice. And so you're right, you know, I hope that she is recognized as you know, the kind of public servant that she is, having made that, pu- that, that personal sacrifice. I do, I'm not so crazy about hearing politicians and others say that George Floyd made a sacrifice for racial justice. I've heard that too many times. He didn't make a sacrifice. He was going to the store trying to live his life. And he was murdered, according to the jury, right? He didn't make a voluntary sacrifice. So I I worry about that characterization.
0: So it's incredibly important that the jury found Chauvin guilty. But reigning in the cops is not going to happen through individual prosecutions like this. It's going to take some very big changes in America, Uh, For starters, uh, the House has passed something called the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, passed last April. This is kind of the beginning of what we need, and it begins by eliminating qualified immunity. You're a law professor. Explain what that means.
1: Yeah, that's a start. It is a modest start, but a start. Qualified immunity is a judicially created doctrine that insulates officers' from liability for egregious conduct often. It, um, you could bring a suits against them for money damages, civil suits, but the court stepped in and said, no, you cannot recover money damages even if they violate your constitutional rights unless they violated it in exactly the same way that some other police officers violated it earlier. So it was a highly artificial improvised judicial doctrine. They're just to insulate police from accountability. And if it's gotten rid of, it, its passing won't be mourned, right? But that is not, that's but a small step that, uh, uh, toward the kind of goals that the people marching in the street over last summer had
0: in mind. Well, let me just review what else is in the George Floyd Justice for Policing Act that passed the House creates a national da- database of police misconduct. So cops like Derek Chauvin won't get jobs Good in idea. other departments. Good idea. Uh, requires federal law enforcement officials to use body cams and dash cams. You have a, a, a footnote to that one. Yes, we had body cams
1: in the Derek Chauvin case, for example. It took that brave journalist that you just talked about. Her footage is the footage that was the indictment, the damning footage. The officer's body cams didn't really give us any useful information in terms of this conviction.
0: Uh, the the House bill also uh, bans federal law enforcement from using chokeholds and bans no-knock warrants in drug cases. That's what killed Breonna Taylor. Those are good things. There's, it's a start, John, but for example, take that last point. You know, banning no-knock
1: raids is a good idea, but a much better idea is, is ending the war on drugs that the no-knock raids were used as part of they're not ending the war on drugs that's the real systemic racism factor right they're ending one of it's one of it they're reforming it at the margins and that's what the protesters the grassroots activists have been saying we got to cut deeper and not settle for mere reforms but for transformation
0: and there's one more thing that you've worked very hard on here in Los Angeles for the last year and that's electing local district occur- attorneys who pledge to treat police brutality like any other crime.
1: Exactly. George Gascon, um, Chessa Boudin, Larry Krasner, uh, DAs around the country that voters are putting into office because the voters believe more and more that we have to have police accountability and criminal justice reform if we're going to really heal some of the divisions in this society
0: much more far sighted than the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that the house has passed of course is the breathe act proposed by the movement for black lives that that's the proposal to shift resources away from the police to fund community programs to deal with problems at the roots of inequality and over policing uh, some of the things on their list are sending uh, trained civilian professionals to be our first responders in mental health crises instead of heavily armed police, Um, um, dealing with uh, traffic enforcement by civilians rather than armed police who tend to escalate these into violent confrontations, dealing with low-level offenses by issuing tickets rather than arresting people, putting them in handcuffs, taking them away, sometimes killing them. Uh, these are the bigger steps is what we really need.
1: That's what we really need. Dante Wright was killed over a, an air freshener hanging from his rear view mirror and some inspired tags. All right. In other words, he was killed on, a, on the basis of a pretext stop. And the, yeah. and the Supreme Court has said that it's all right for officers to engage in pretext stops. And what those are, John, is stopping frisks on wheels. That's what they are. They allow an officer who has a hunch that that young black man behind that wheel may be up to criminal wrongdoing, but that hunch doesn't rise to the level of a reasonable suspicion. And so he can't constitutionally pull that black guy over. But if he sees a air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror, now he has a pretext for pulling him over and acting on that, un- that hunch. That wasn't constitutionally sufficient before. So it invites that kind of racial profiling on the basis of pretext. And until we get police out of um, these traffic vehicle stops, you know, traffic enforcement, they're always going to come up to these traffic stops and believe in the myth of the dangerous traffic stop. They, they, they've been trained and they believe that their lives are in mortal danger every time they walk upon a motorist that they pulled over for a traffic violation, right? The fact of the matter is that's not close to true, that when you look at the statistics, uh, there are lots of other professions that are head of police in terms of mortality associated with the occupation, but they still have this belief. It makes them overreact in those situations. So the only way to prevent more accidents and tragedies coming out of those situations is to minimize those situations. Unbundle the police, get them out of traffic enforcement, and get them out of as many contacts with stereotype groups and members of stereotype groups as possible.
0: I have to mention in this context, Philando Castile, my hometown of St. Paul. This is a guy who had been stopped on traffic stops, what, 40 times, 50 times, 60 times. Uh, And this was one more stop. His girlfriend is sitting next to him in the car. The baby is in the back seat. The girlfriend says to the cops, please don't kill him, and the cop kills him.
1: John, I'm driving to school a couple years ago now to my torts class down exposition, and a car pulls up behind me. I see red and blue lights from a police car. I pull over. Nothing happens for five, then 10 minutes. Here comes a helicopter. Here comes Mm -hmm. more police cars. Here comes a foot patrol. Um, Then he walks up to the car like 15 minutes later, looks in, sees me in a tie because I was getting ready to teach for class. And a surprise. All he saw from the back was a big fro in what seemed like a car that a big fro shouldn't be in. And so I was I had to go through that helicopter. He thought I was a flight risk. And so it (laughs) brought in a helicopter. All right. And the foot um, patrols. Right. And I had to go in and teach my class with that kind of trauma, thinking about, you know, kind of. Um, what a bro- close brush that was unnecessarily. And that black tax is what black folks pay routinely day in and day out. And that is oh, can only be minimized when you minimize the opportunities for our violence workers, which is what police are. We give them a Glock with live ammunition, a stun gun, a billy club, um, you know, mace and handcuffs. They're violence workers. We have to minimize the contact between those violence workers and members of stereotype groups.
0: So today we had... Three guilty verdicts. We saw a cop taken away in handcuffs for murdering a black man. Your closing thoughts today.
1: Undeniably, we have something that we can feel good about. We can feel relieved, but I don't want to feel relieved. I don't want justice to be my sense of relief at having, if you will, dodged a bullet of injustice, having avoided a catastrophic miscarriage of justice and saying, as long as we do that, we can feel good about ourselves. So I'm tempered in my in my triumphalism by, you know, sober recognition of how much work we still have to do.
0: Jody Armor of the USC law school, Jody, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. <clears throat> It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back.
2: Always good to be here, John.
0: The guilty verdicts in Minneapolis on Tuesday left us all feeling better about our country. A lot of people are saying it was the cell phone video that really convicted police officer Derek Chauvin. When people see something with their own eyes, it's hard to deny the truth. What do you
2: think? Uh, well, what's that old Chico Marx line? Who are you going to believe? Me or your own eyes? <laughs> uh, all praise to the uh, 17-year-old the young woman who recorded the whole uh, god-awful uh, murder, but the history of such visual recording doesn't suggest that when uh, it's a killing of a Black person that's at issue or the uh, police abuse of a Black person that's at issue, no matter how clear the visual representation, the actual representation, usually hasn't led to a, uh, a guilty verdict uh, for, uh, for anyone. If you'll recall the 19th and early 20th century, there were plenty of photographs of lynchings in progress, of lynch mobs in progress, usually at long shots, so you couldn't see the actual perpetrators clearly, but often not. And you could, and no one did anything about it. And in then, fact, those,
0: know, were, those were commercially available often. They were postcards that people would send from the scene.
2: That's right. Look, here's the whole family uh, enjoying a lynching. Those of us who were in Los Angeles in 1991 remember when uh, a guy standing on his balcony just happened to record the police beating of Rodney King, which fortunately wasn't fatal, but was clearly grotesque and by any standard that was dispassionate, uh, a clear case of uh, unjustified police violence. That was aired on a local TV station and then, of course, famously, the trial was held and the four cops were acquitted, notwithstanding prima facie evidence that they were, uh, to coin a phrase, guilty as hell. Uh, and, you know, this, this goes on and on. Uh, and so what was different this time? Well, a number of things were different this time. But basically, starting with the uh, uh, violence in Ferguson, uh, Missouri in 2015, you know there had been growing a, a black lives matter movement and when the whole nearly 10 minutes of george floyd's killing which legally now thank god is george uh, george floyd's murder when when that was uh, went viral around the world a real there was just an eruption of of movement sentiment it was a broad movement it was led obviously by Blacks, many of them were already active in Black Lives Matter, but it became uh, multiracial, multigenerational. It became huge and it stayed vigilant. It became a factor in real world politics. People active in the movement for Black Lives played a key role in turning out the vote last November. And I would say, therefore, that the difference this time was not uh, the, the the visual evidence not it was still crucial it was necessary it was a necessary condition of the conviction but it wasn't sufficient. What made it sufficient was a social movement that was both smart, militant and persistent. That's essentially why we have uh, the, the guilty verdict on uh, on, on chauvin uh, earlier this week
0: So, I think you're right. To get this guilty verdict, to to see that video in the Minneapolis courtroom, the live TV broadcast of the cop in handcuffs being taken to jail for the murder of a Black man, something I think that's never happened in American history before. What did it take to get there? As you've said, millions of people in the streets, hundreds of towns and cities, not just for a day or two, but for weeks and months. Before that, 10 years of organizing by Black Lives Matter, and and the video shot by Darnella Fraser, that 17-year-old kid. It can't be this hard in the future. And, uh, and we can't really solve this problem by convicting cops after they kill black people. And that's why there's a lot of discussion everywhere today uh, about how to address the larger problem. And one of the things that's happened already is that Democrats in Congress have passed the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, Karen Bass uh, got this through the House last year, and yesterday, after the verdicts, one of the first things President Biden said was the Senate should pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. So maybe we should talk about that for a minute. What's in that bill?
2: Well, there's a lot of things in that bill. It's a bit of a kitchen sink uh, approach to, you know, a problem that is hugely pervasive. Uh, it would ban chokeholds. It would uh, create a registry of, of cops who have reported incidents of, uh, of, of violence uh, that, that they've committed, you know, so that uh, even if a cop is, is fired from one department, he or she can't just hop to another. Uh, a, a, lot of, a, a lot of provisions like that. I should also add that on Wednesday, uh, the uh, new leadership at uh, Joe Biden's Justice Department, Merrick Garland, initiated an investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department there were consent decrees under previous presidential administrations that essentially put police departments under uh, federal supervision the ones still in play were uh, revoked under un, under Donald Trump and no new ones were put in place now I think we're going back to uh, you know to some of that which can have some effect let's take these things one at a time first of all the the
0: House bill, Your colleague David Dayan wrote today that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act quote, is not a transformative bill, close quote. What exactly does he mean? And I wonder if you agree.
2: Obviously, there are certain things in terms of uh, defunding police, which in real world terms means taking a bunch of functions that police now perform, like traffic stops, which as we all know, can uh, mysteriously result in cops killing motorists, whether, you know, black motorists, whether there's any provocation for the stop or not, or in LA recently a bicycle violation that led to a, a, a police shooting. You know, there, there, there are things like that of, of moving a whole bunch of uh, services away from police to sort of minimize the kind of unnecessary contact, which often is provocative contact that they have with the public and disproportionately with minority members of the public. That sort of thing certainly isn't in the bill. And I think that needs to be done. But, you know, that can be, I mean, there also needs to be movement in that direction on the city level, with cities redirecting some of police budgets away to social services as well. But, you know, in terms of what's politically possible, it, you know, already the, uh, the uh, uh, George, George Floyd Act, which the House passed in the last session, there's just no, no hope of getting it through the Senate unless, and this is the refrain for virtually everything, yeah, unless yeah. the Senate repeals the filibuster.
0: So seems at this point, the Senate is not likely to abolish the filibuster. That makes it seem like the George Floyd Justice is in Policing Act, will not become law, even though it's not a transformative bill. But, but can't Biden do some of the things we need by executive action?
2: Out of, yeah, I, I I think he can. And and certainly federal budget in terms of what he does with funding uh, police services is one way. And the thing I referred to uh, earlier with the Justice Department basically, uh, you know, being open to supervising any number of police departments that have a history of abuse, which is a hell of a lot of police departments, that's on, essentially on the president's plate as well.
0: Well, in terms of executive action, you know, the the American prospect did a fantastic job on what Biden could accomplish with executive actions in the first hundred days. And you've been tracking these and he, he hasn't done very many of them, especially the ones relating to policing.
2: Well, that's true. And I think that may be because there's a pattern in the Biden presidency so far, which is to go big on legislation, which probably, you know, is going to garner a lot of support as a way of building support for himself across the aisle, not in the Congress, but in the public. And and so he's clearly going big on uh, infrastructure as he went big on the coronavirus relief bill. And those are measures where the public is with him. He is more cautious Uh, in in two areas we we, we can see. Uh, Immigration, where uh, I I think he has concluded that, among other things, so long as uh, the coronavirus is a threat, uh, opening the borders as much as he thought even he could uh, without political uh, huge problems when he was a candidate, uh, he's clearly resisting that. Though the, uh, the claims of, of refugees are, are, are valid and are supported by the bulk of the Democratic Party. Uh, and policing, I think he's a little wary about that still. Let's say he looks at Pennsylvania and he says, well, I can see clean energy may cost some jobs, but I'm going to create so many jobs with the infrastructure bill that I can still hold the area of the state around Pittsburgh. And then he looks at police reform, and then he looks at immigration, and he says, well, you know, that's not something to lead with. Let's get back to that uh, perhaps later.
0: Well, just one of the things on the prospect list of, of executive actions that could be taken right now is ending the transfer of military equipment to police departments. Sure. Sure. Uh, He could do that. For some reason, he's still sending hundreds of millions of dollars worth of this scary stuff that makes, I mean, in Minneapolis, people have been complaining for weeks. We feel like we're under military occupation, and a lot of that is because they have, see, Humvees and military vehicles and weapons and so on. There's an example. Doesn't seem like that big a deal to cut the transfer of military equipment, but he hasn't even done
2: that. Right, right. I mean there's an element of, of of I think the Biden mindset right now that is super cautious on what he considers could be you know waving a red flag on uh, uh, before the bull of uh, you name it <laughs> white working class voters he yeah. he, thinks he can win back so,
0: He has not taken these executive actions, but his attorney general, as you have said, has announced a federal investigation into the police in Minneapolis and whether they've engaged in a pattern or practice of the use of excessive force. Uh, Garland told reporters on Wednesday that his Department is reaching out to community groups in Minneapolis to talk to them about their experience with the police, and as you said, this leads to federal consent decrees where police departments are required to agree to make certain reforms. The federal government then, through the courts, monitors their compliance, they're required to submit regular reports. We know this in Los Angeles very well. Uh Uh, because after the Rampart scandal, the LAPD was, under I looked this up, was under a consent decree for 12 years, longer than any other police department from 2001 to 2013, which required them to make dozens of reforms, submit regular reports to the monitor. Um, My favorite reform was that they had to agree to stop committing perjury in court. That's a Good reform for the boy, LAPD.
2: Uh, boy, that's really that, that's really coming down hard on them, isn't
0: it? <laughs> and they had to certify that they were in compliance on this. And it did seem from 2001 to 2013 that the LAPD had changed. We got rid of the old chief. We got reforming chiefs who talked about the new kind of policing. But a lot of people will tell you that for the last couple of years, the current LAPD continues to use excessive force, continues to kill too many people, despite having been under a federal consent decree for 12 years. So this is a good thing, but it, as you say, it's necessary, but may not be sufficient.
2: No, it it is absolutely necessary and it is equally, absolutely (laughs) insufficient. And and that is why, among other things, you don't want uh, groups like uh, Black Lives Matter uh, even really to relax. Uh, after uh, this week's verdict, because this is, uh, as Irving Howe once said of being a social critic, uh, this is steady work. Steady work. The the, the need for it is not going to lessen one bit.
0: So we've criticized Joe Biden for not taking the executive actions he could take around police practices, but he emphasizes that fighting racism is not just about policing and that he's made it a part of every one of his proposals. That is a very good
2: thing. Yeah, he is the first president ever to repeatedly say the word systemic racism and uh, his belief in the need to diminish systemic racism does affect most of uh, most of the administration's policies, and it affects where dollars uh, are, are directed under his proposed infrastructure proposal, which directs a lot to really dealing with the uh, presence of dangerous pollutants in minority communities, that sort of thing. So yes, it does affect a, a great deal of his policies.
0: And uh, on the LA front, we should you've emphasized that municipal action is certainly the best way maybe the best way to deal with police since the federal government doesn't control the local police they only control the federal law in LA of course we have elected a progressive district attorney who has pledged to prosecute cops who commit crimes and me, but meanwhile uh, just just on Wednesday LA mayor Eric Garcetti announced he proposes to Increase the LAPD budget by 3%. Uh, this is of course the opposite of what we've been demanding all for the last several months. The demand has been the money would be better spent on community programs, on alternatives to violent policing of what, the kind you've talked about. And in July, the city cut $150 million from the police department. So that's all, right, all gonna go July back last year. Yeah. Last yeah. year the proposed budget of the LAPD is one and three quarters billion dollars, B as in baby. LA, it's a very mixed picture where we have, looks like we have an excellent district attorney, but there's not gonna be the kind of shift in priorities away from standard routine
2: police policing as the response to all our problems. Well, uh, you know, uh, I, I think particularly in his timing, uh, Mayor Garcetti, uh, has exhibited a certain tone deafness yeah. uh, to, uh, to what's going on. He, he's trim he's limited out in 2022, and this could well be uh, an issue in the race for mayor that, uh, to succeed him.
0: Well, second big topic. Today, Thursday is Earth Day, and you have some big news for the movement to address the climate crisis from a very unexpected corner the mines of West Virginia.
2: Yes. Uh, on Monday, the United Mine Workers, uh, a, uh, a union with a rich historic past, which basically gave rise to industrial unionism, the auto workers, the steel workers, in a sense, to uh, the uh, economic, relative economic uh, uh, egalitarianism of the post-war decades, the only period when America's working class was substantially unionized and and basically decently paid, that union on Monday badly shrunk from, you know, half a million workers in the mid 20th century uh, and right to to today, when there are only 44,000 mine workers in the country, and by no means all of them union members, that union more or less said, okay, we acknowledge reality. We will uh, go with uh, uh, the... uh, uh, um, transition away from fossil fuels, but the government needs to provide us with uh, the term of art is a just transition, uh, specifically good-paying unionized jobs in other sources of energy uh, or uh, tidying our members over until such employment becomes available. Uh, there's precedent for this in the past history of, uh, of industries uh, of some industries that have uh, shrunk when uh, a, a union agreed to go along with such things. But for the mine workers to do this, which they did on Monday, is, is really quite, uh, I think, a decisive break. Uh, it, it, it's not what all unions are doing. There are still some building trades unions that depend heavily on uh, oil and gas for their employment, and they haven't made similar statements yet. But the, you know, coal is, is more immediately on the chopping block than, uh, than oil and gas. And so the mine workers, I hate to say they're the canary in the coal mine, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think, God forbid, I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're certainly signaling their awareness of what the future holds. And quite rightly, they're trying to make it a future that doesn't come at their members' expense.
0: Harold Meyerson on The Canary in the Coal Mine, readamidprospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show.
2: I should chirp. Uh, Always (laughs) good to be there, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. It's Earth Day, three days of climate action culminating on April 22nd. For comment, we turn to Mark Hertzgaard. His writing about climate change and politics has appeared in The New Yorker, The Guardian, The New York Times, and Scientific American, as well as the nation, and he's been a regular commentator for the public radio program's Morning Edition and Marketplace. He's published seven books that have been translated into 16 languages, most recently Bravehearts, Whistleblowing in the Age of Snowden, and he's executive director of Covering Climate Now, a global consortium of hundreds of news outlets reaching 2 billion people with news about the climate emergency, and He's the nation's environmental correspondent. We reached him today in San Francisco. Mark, welcome back. Always
3: good to be with you, John.
0: You are urging us to use the term climate emergency rather than talking about climate change or the climate crisis. Why is climate emergency better?
3: Climate emergency is the right term to use because that's what the scientists are telling us, not just in their public comments, but in peer-reviewed journals now. Uh, and as you know, I've been covering climate change since 1990. So I've seen the way that the uh, discussion has evolved. And, you know, scientists are very, very careful about how they use language. And the uh, particular statement about climate emergency comes from some of the most eminent climate scientists there are, such as James Hansen, the former NASA scientist who really is the godfather of climate science in the modern era, at least. It was his US Senate testimony in 1988 that first put the global warming issue on the public agenda when he said, you know, climate change, human-caused climate change is happening. And uh, so he's one of them. Sir David King is another one of the very prominent scientists who talk about a climate emergency, uh, David King for many years was the chief science advisor to the British government and crown. And I could you know, literally name you thousands of others. In fact, at our website at Covering Climate Now, uh, we have a fact sheet that lists all the different uh, scientific backing for this idea that this is a climate emergency. And among them, is a, a statement that has now been signed by some 13,000 scientists around the world wow. that talk about climate change as an emergency. And the reason that it's important to say emergency, I think, uh, now speaking as a, as a reporter, is that you know the word emergency it conveys the need to act immediately. It's not just a climate problem, it's not even a climate crisis only, it's an emergency, because why? Because like with a heart attack, you need immediate reaction. You need immediate treatment. It's, you know, if you get a bad cancer diagnosis, for example, if you go to the doctor the next day or two days later, it's probably not going to change the outcome that much. Whereas if you suddenly have a massive heart attack, you need to get to a hospital within minutes. And that's what the scientists are trying to get across, that there's no more time for half measures. There's no more time for delays. The house, our planetary house is literally on fire. And we have to act like that. And so that's why um, in the lead up to Earth Day, Covering Climate Now and eight of our core news outlet partners, including, of course, The Nation, which was a co-founder of Covering Climate Now, along with Columbia Journalism Review and The Guardian and uh, a number of other scientific American you mentioned, we've all signed a statement and invited our fellow journalists to do the same. And this statement essentially just says It's time for journalism to recognize that the science says we face an emergency and we as journalists should be responding accordingly. You know, good journalism is grounded in fact. And uh, in the case of climate, most of those facts or many of those facts are science. So it is not advocacy. It is not partisanship. It is not activism to talk about this as a climate emergency. That is journalistic, and scientific fact. And we in the news media should be uh, treating it accordingly.
0: Well, let's talk about the activism side, Earth Day, April 22nd. Earth Day is the world's largest recruiter to the environmental movement. Earthday.org says it works with more than 75,000 partners in 190 countries and that more than a billion people now participate in Earth Day activities, making it the largest civic observance in the world. The official Earth Day events this year are organized into what they call five pillars. They are the Canopy Project, food and environment, the great global cleanup, climate literacy, and a a citizen science initiative. What can you tell us about the five pillars?
3: I think the important thing
0: about Earth Day, as
3: you say, it's, you know, it's long been a kind of a recruiter to the movement. Let's remember the history of Earth Day. Uh, 1970, 20 million Americans went into the streets around Earth Day, and it scared the bejesus out of a sitting president named Richard M. Nixon. Richard Nixon had never been much of a tree hugger, to put it mildly. <laughs> and yet he was determined to run for re-election in 1972. And, of course... There were a lot of protests in the United States at that time and previously those protests had been mainly about the Vietnam War and the civil rights uh, movement. But with Earth Day in April of uh, 1970, Nixon saw something different. He saw that the people, those 20 million people who were out in the streets, they weren't the long haired hippies. They weren't the black people who were demanding their civil rights. These were librarians, these were school children, these were church ministers' wives. This was middle America saying, we want clean air, we want clean water, et cetera. And Nixon, whatever you think of his policies, was a very shrewd politician. And so he decided at that point that he, for his reelection purposes, had to take the environmental issue away from the Democratic Party. And as a result, He pushed through and signed with the Congress uh, support, he pushed through uh, environmental laws that to this day, John, remain, at least on paper, the strongest environmental laws in the world. And the 1970s was an era of uh, very strong federal action on the environment. And so I think that's the lesson that we really need to see out of Earth Day, is that what what creates real change is not just saying, oh, we, we... hope that the world is a greener place. It's getting out in the streets and scaring politicians to do the right thing, because otherwise, you know, I have a certain amount of sympathy for the politicians. They, they are always being pushed and pressured by big money, whether it be the oil industry or the pharmaceutical industry or whatever. That's part of political life. And the only way that a president can turn down Exxon or turn down Peabody, Cola, whoever it is, is to say when you get that phone call from the CEO, uh, as the president inevitably does, say, listen, I'm I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, sir, but I have 20 million people in the street here. And I have got to respond to that as well. So to me, that's what is uh, the most important lesson about Earth Day. And we see that carried forward today, I think primarily here in the United States by the work of the young people around the Sunrise Movement, who, you know, sat in on that, sat in in Nancy Pelosi's uh, office in 2018 after the congressional elections, and then, of course, Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for Future movement internationally, where literally millions of young people skipped school and went into the streets to protest generational injustice. You know, lately, you know, we've we've rightfully finally started to talk a lot more about racial justice in the United States, about gender justice, about economic justice. What Earth Day and the activists, the young activists today are talking about is something that we don't talk about enough in public, which is generational justice. Because of what the current generation and especially the privileged and the powerful within the current generation have done, these young people, including my 16 year old daughter, are now condemned to a very, very difficult future, even if we do everything right from here on out with climate, which we're far from doing. And these young people are getting into the streets and saying, enough, we are protesting against this, and you have got to do better. So to me, that's the real exciting thing about Earth Day, that that spirit. It's not so much those five pillars. Those are great, and I I, look forward to all the kinds of activities that will doubtless be unfolding around the world on that. But to me, more important is the spirit of protest that's behind Earth Day. This is not just feel-good stuff. This is, you know, life-and-death politics.
0: And for the first time in four years, we have a president who is responding to the millions of people making these demands. On Earth Day, April 22nd, the Biden administration is hosting a global climate summit. Biden is appealing to 40 world leaders seeking new commitments from the world's biggest carbon emitters to fulfill the 2015 Paris Agreement by taking bold action to slash greenhouse gas emissions in the next 10 years. The uh, United States is expected to unveil its own national plan. I should say we're speaking on Tuesday about something that's going to happen on Thursday. We're not sure right now what... Biden will say is the American's goal for cutting greenhouse gas emissions over the next 10 years. What do you think it is likely to be? What do you think it should be?
3: You're quite right that it is a a breath of fresh air, quite literally, to have a climate realist in the White House. Um, But we have to remember that to the rest of the world, they look at the United States and of course they welcome Joe Biden being president rather than Donald Trump. But they also recognize that the United States political system allowed the last four years of worse than non-action on climate. And so there's a certain amount of of, uh, skepticism uh, or a little bit of, you know, state of Missouri, like show me. Uh, So I think Biden and his team uh, have got to really step up big and uh, not just at the uh, climate summit, the Earth Day Summit, but through the rest of this year, leading up to November, the next U.N. meeting where Really, that's where the Paris Agreement goals are supposed to be strengthened. So much of the media coverage to date in the United States, though, has kind of followed the usual deferring to Washington line that, oh, the United States, John Kerry, the, Secretary's, or sorry, the, uh, the climate envoy for Biden, he's now been around the world and he's pushing all these other countries to do better. Wait a minute. We're the ones who need to be pushed to do better. We're the ones who dropped the ball the last four years. So I hope that my colleagues as we cover this story um, are are a little more uh, reflective about that. Now, as you mentioned, the Biden administration seems to be floating off the record that they will make what they call a very ambitious announcement at the Earth Day Summit. And what they're talking about is something like cutting the uh, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50% compared to 2005 levels by the year 2030. That is roughly in line with what the U.N. climate scientists said is necessary in their last major report, which came out in October 2018. And that was a report that some of uh, our listeners may recall. It sparked a lot of headlines about how we have 12 years left to basically avoid climate catastrophe, which is a slightly misleading headline, but it is definitely true that we have got to slash these emissions very immediately again. Why is it an emergency? Because these emissions reductions have to happen now, not next month, not next year, now. And uh, so I think that uh, one other great thing about Biden is that he clearly understands the science And he has assembled a team of people across the federal government that will be integrating climate into everything from national security to the the United States Treasury, to housing, et cetera, et cetera, not just energy, not just transportation. Those are all good. And I think it's also very interesting that the Biden administration in general seems to have learned a lesson from the Obama years. Obama uh, bent over backwards to try and get consensus with Republicans on Capitol Hill, which was a bit uh, of a um, impossibility given that the Republicans had made it clear literally on the first day of of Obama's term and time in the White House that they were committed to his presidency being quote, a failure as Mitch McConnell said. So Biden is not waiting for that non-existent Republican consensus. He's welcoming them to be part of it if they want to, but he is not going to let Republican intransigence stop him. And so I think um, whatever uh, the Biden administration announces at the Earth Day Summit, the real question is what happens on Capitol Hill? How much can you push through? And there is where, again, the spirit of Earth Day is so important because there will be a lot of politicians, a lot of office holders on, on both the Senate and the House who um, can be pushed on this again the conventional media narrative is oh you know the republicans are going to be completely against anything on climate well you would have thought that about richard nixon in 1970. <laughs> and uh i think what you see from the 2020 elections is that uh you know it was young people and especially sunrise movement activists young people and people of color who delivered the winning margin of victory for Biden uh, and some some other down-ticket Democrats, but especially in states like Georgia and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So I think politicians are aware that the winds of change are shifting now and that you do not want to be looking like you are against climate action. Even a majority of young Republicans, and by young I mean under the age of 40, now say in the social science research they want action they're worried about climate change they don't entirely understand all the the specifics of it but they know that something bad is happening and they want to hear more news about it which is part of the reason that uh, covering climate now exists but uh, they also want action and so i i that's what i'm going to be watching as a simply as a reporter on this is the battle in washington and whether republicans are really going to be as um, intransigent as they've been in the in the past four years
0: one final thing you mentioned Biden's team. There's one guy who's fascinating, who's Biden has appointed, Jerome Foster. He's an 18-year-old climate activist who Biden appointed to a White House group working on climate policy. Tell us a little about Jerome Foster.
3: That's a wonderful story, John. I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, and I commend, by the way, uh, look at the Guardian uh, story about Jerome Foster, the Guardian I have to say is our lead media partner at Covering Climate Now, and we chose them for that because they do the best climate coverage in the English language, and this is a perfect example of it. They knew about who Jerome Foster was back when Jerome Foster was protesting outside the White House, solo by the way, starting with, uh, inspired by Greta Thunberg's Fridays for Future movement. And Jerome was a young man. I think at that time he was 17, sitting alone outside of the White House, holding up his climate strike, African-American kid, and uh, very committed to all this stuff. And somehow, I mean, I think it's a great uh, sign of Biden's openness uh, to this stuff that, that they appointed Jerome to be part of their advisory group. And this is something, you know, The Nation Magazine, let's be honest, we were not happy with Joe Biden as the candidate and a lot of us preferred a different candidate, many times Bernie Sanders. But you have to give Biden credit that last summer, he allowed himself to be pushed by the Sunrise Movement and these younger activists towards it and, and Bernie Sanders too. Pushed Biden to have a much more aggressive climate policy than he did. When Biden was a candidate at the start of 2020, he had such a weak climate policy that I think Greenpeace gave him a, a D minus. <laughs> but to his credit, Biden saw both the science and he saw the politics of it, that young people really wanted more. And, you know, in politics, that's what you want. In a democracy, you want a politician to respond to that kind of organized pressure. And I see Jerome Foster. As a symbol of that kind of pressure and how being out in the streets, literally, as he was for 58 weeks, can bring you into the halls of power, which, again, goes back to the lesson of the original Earth Day. Get out in the streets, folks, if you want real political change.
0: For more on Earth Day 2021, you can check out EarthDay.org and look at Covering Climate Now. Mark Hertzgaard, read him at the nation.com. Mark? Thanks for your work. And thanks for talking with us today.
3: Always a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.